This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey everybody, I'm here with Blake, aka Spider Waffle, a, uh, I guess you would say a CRT technician and reseller. Is that a decent enough explanation? Uh, yeah, more or less. That that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, I um I really wanted to get you on because uh, I think, you know, I, I think a lot of people are, are are not fully educated in what goes into restoring and selling these monitors and. I think there's a lot of just natural hate in the retro world for resellers in general. And uh, I just, I feel like telling your side of the story um, might be helpful to some people. Because, you know, having one extra monitor that you want to fix up and sell is way different in every way than getting a pile of them, restoring them, and selling them. And, uh, you know, there's a, a few people out there that are now notorious for claiming they do just that, but in fact just... Buy a mon- or stack of monitors and sell them for a huge premium with no actual restoration. So I kind of wanted to shed some light on that, and because you know if you Google your name, the only thing that comes up is some some awful Reddit threads. <laughs> and I, uh, you know, I, I was introduced to you by somebody I trust, so I just, um, you know, right off the bat, it's uh, it's obvious you're not just a scalper, so or, or not a scalper. So um, I guess if you want to give a quick introduction to yourself and you know, kind of what your uh, you know, what you do with these monitors and just the short, short version, I guess we'll build from there. Uh, yeah, I'd like to say, yeah, Bob, thanks for having me on here. Um, I'm a big fan of your website. I reference a lot of my clients, uh, over to it, uh, when they've got specific questions, you know, with different consoles, getting the right cables, making sure, you know, their setups are going to work, uh, with the monitors that they buy for me. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so um, I got started into um, working on these monitors specifically maybe five years ago. I actually wanted to acquire one for my own. Sorry, uh, it's, uh, I, live in, I live in Manhattan, so it, there's just, as we go, there's going to be sirens, screams, horns, and, and everything else. Nothing I could really do about it. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so yeah, I wanted to acquire one for my own personal use, um, for speed running. Um, I was trying to get back some of my old, uh, records I had for, you know, classic Nintendo games and such. Um, and then once I got one, you know, I started to, to learn a lot more about them. Um, you know, it was like a, a 600 line, uh, PVM. I wanted to, you know, get some better ones, and I, I found some 800 lines. That they weren't too hard to find back at that time in Los Angeles, um, San Diego. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started getting them and um, started asking around from like friends and people in work because I worked in um, production and film, so I had some contacts through there. So I started networking through that. And, um, yeah, eventually got to know some people, particularly I was a Sony engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to know pretty well and, um, 
through that, um, I got some references to some large companies that wanted to just liquidate tons of monitors. Um, they're not really in the interest of like having people come over one at a time to look at these because it just disrupts their um, their it's a usual waste work. Of their time. Yeah, right. It's a waste of their time. So for them, it's really just about the time. They just want them all gone, and it's probably at the end of the day, it's a tax write off for them. So they don't care so much about that it's just they don't want to disrupt their regular time mm -hmm. um yeah so they would there's only most i'd say 95 percent of the monitors i've gotten have been from like three really big deals um there's just a ton of monitors thousands hundreds of thousands of dollars maybe mm -hmm. um so that's that's mostly how i've gotten all of these monitors um and it just kind of built from there like it was a progression um, you know, starting with a 600 line PVM, eventually getting like a 800 line of BVMs and, and that stuff. Um, so you went and, down the same rat hole that most of us did is once you get a taste of it, it's like, well, let's see what else we got. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, um, I had quite a bit of free time at, at that time. So I really put a lot of time into studying and learning these. Um, back in college, I was uh, double majoring in uh, electrical engineering and mechanical. Um, I eventually decided just to finish the mechanical degree. Um, so, but I still, you know, know some of that information still. Um, and so I was able to read a lot of these, uh, the manuals, great information in them. And just through that and, and working on these, I mean, it was frustrating at first. I remember the first time I tried to calibrate convergence rings and purity <laughs> rings. It was um, it was uh, very, very aggravating and frustrating. Um, but, you know, you I just kept trying. You learn more. You get better. You read more information. There's been a lot of great um, websites that have helped me. Um, our arcade repair... Um, they've got a great, uh, Facebook group there. Um, those guys have answered a lot of my questions in the past. Um, and then there's a, quite a few different internet, um, references to, to repairing, um, fixing, calibrating these monitors. And it's just been a lot of self-study, mm -hmm. a, a lot of working, um, tinkering on these, adjusting, calibrating and, yeah, so I, I do that a lot. Um, it's, I mean, almost a full-time job now. It's, um, I get a lot of demand, uh, people that want to buy these. Um, yeah, yeah so I don't think people seem to realize how much time would actually go into doing a lot of these things. Like, have you done full recaps on any of the BVMs or PVMs? Uh, yes, I have a few times. It's... Uh, <laughs> It sucks. It's, it's, <laughs> it sucks. Yeah, especially. Um, well, it depends on the monitor. Um, like the twenty L fives are. I mean, the first time I took one of those apart, it took like maybe four hours just to get all the boards apart. It's uh, it's such a clusterfuck of cables and it's part of my language. No, um, fire away. It's okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, it depends on the monitor. The BVMs of the the modular cards are much much easier mm -hmm. um, to get at get at. Um, but yeah, recapping. There's there's a lot of little caps on there. Um, when you do recaps, do you recap all of them, or do you have a list of like? Do you check with an ESR meter? Is there, you know, what's your normal procedure when you go doing something like that? So 
It depends on the hours. Um, a lot of the monitors I have came from uh, rental use, mm-hmm. and I'm able to check like check their hours, or if it's like um, a 20L5, for example, it has the same uh, tube as BVM uh, 20F1Us and D20F1Us. Mm-hmm. And so those do track the hours. So I'm able to cross-reference the values you get on a colorometer probe from the two. And with a large enough sample size, you get a pretty good model of what the hours are on a a PVM that uses the same tube. Hmm. Um, So with that, usually um, I don't need to recap like 2005s, these ones that were used for rental use. Mm -hmm. Um, There's just the hours are so low, the caps are fine. Yeah, it's um, funny because I think a lot of the ones I've seen that came from rentals, the cases themselves are all beat up, but mm, the, the tubes are perfect. Yes. <laughs> Which yes, is, definitely. I mean, that's, from my personal opinion, everybody's different. There's no right or wrong way. But I don't think, I don't care if the thing is missing chunks out of it. If it's got a mint tube and it, it works fine, and that's all I ever cared about. Yes, that's, that's one of the biggest problems I've had with these. Um, a lot of the screens have little nicks and scratches from being moved around, um, like the corners of other 20L5s nicked them and scratched them. Mm. Um, so that's one of the, th- the big things. Um, I've, you, know, you can remove the film, and it's, um, there's not much difference. It's a pretty mild anti-glare film. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember so, talking a lot to Pat about that because there were different opinions from people online about whether you should or shouldn't do it. And there was a whole lot of people that said, absolutely never do it. You know, now your glass is exposed. And Pat brought up the really good point of the D32 never had a film, uh, you know, a film over it. That's the most expensive one out there. So uh, what are you really worried about? So, Yeah, the, the 24 and the 32 don't have a film. Um and uh, yeah, like the 20L5s, the film is incredibly mild because um, they were designed to be used in controlled lighting environments, mm-hmm. like dim dim lighting typically. Um, so um, because the film, the, the stronger the anti-glare properties are, it the more it's going to dilute the color gamut mm-hmm. and the color accuracy of what you're seeing. So they wanted to keep those on the lighter side of that because, you know, they were intended to be used in professional controlled lighting, dim lighting environments. Mm-hmm. So what I found with the film on like a 20L5 on or off, it does not make that much of a difference. Um, if you've got a lot of glare, I'd, I'd recommend having the film. Just mm-hmm. um, It just helps with the glare. Um, the biggest thing you'll notice are the, the black levels. You won't get to see the the true blacks if you've got a lot of background lighting and you don't have the film on. Hmm. That's that's the biggest thing you'll notice. Um, other than that, it's not too much of a difference because again, the film is is it's not that significant of an anti glare film. Yeah, I think the one I saw in person was a fourteen M two U. And uh, I saw, I showed up at Pat's place right after he had removed it. And it was, I mean, it was huge, the difference. It was a very thick filter. Uh, And, you know, once again, this was an old, beat up monitor. So, you know, old meaning the physical condition, not the tube. So I imagine that in situations like that, the the filter itself probably could have gotten dirty and messed up over the years. So just by removing it and cleaning up the glass, it was pretty incredible. So... Right, yeah. Um, yeah, and these films, like, they will scratch and damage easier than glass. 
Um, the glass is actually more robust, um, stronger. Um, it's more scratch resistant. Um, and I've heard the film was designed to be removed, like as a protective thing. Also, in case you know you did encounter some damage, you could remove it, and you still have a great glass behind it. Hmm. It's dual purpose for anti glare and protection. I wonder if they ever. Um... I wonder if they ever intended, like in a controlled environment, for the filter to be replaced. I mean, that would have to be a dust-free room. I mean, that that would be, you know, that, that's not an easy thing to do on a tube. But back in the day when there were no flat screens, I imagine there was some place that probably would have done that. Um, I I have not heard of that. Um, I, I know it's possible. People have installed, like, new anti-glare films on CRT tubes before. Um it's not the easiest thing to do. Like you're saying with, um, dust and air bubbles, if you've ever tried to just put, um, like a film on your smartphone screen, mm-hmm. um, it, that alone can be pretty challenging. Yeah. I never <laughs> get mine right. Mine's always crooked. I just stopped it's using them. Crooked, air bubble. <laughs> yeah. You might have like a speck of dust somewhere. It, it's yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I'd imagine it'd be easier on the pure flat glass than the, the curved glass. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure about, um, reinstalling those sorts of films, but I know like M3, they do make films specifically for monitors that you can put on and and people have used, used that before with success for gaming though. We should probably just, you know, if uh, I guess not worry about it is a better, better way to word this for gaming. You shouldn't worry about it. If you happen to notice that there's something dirty, try to remove it safely. But you know, I wouldn't from from a gamer's point of view, I would never worry about putting one back on. I was just kind of curious about that. Um, yeah, well, I mean, once you remove the film uh, from them, like, that film is is gone. Like, oh, I, right, I yeah. Know, yeah, I have no way to remove that while keeping it intact. It is, like, crumpled and wrinkled and is, is uh, seen. It's <laughs> worse for wear. Um, yeah, um... So when uh, one of the things that I've noticed over the years, now you've probably seen more monitors than me at this point, but I certainly, I get around, and uh, it, it always kind of cracked me up that I've seen 800-line PVMs next to 600-line PVMs, and one had significant, you know, the 800-line had significantly more hours on it, and the 600 looked way better. So to the point where I wouldn't even notice the extra sharpness because you can't because it's kind of old and worn. You know what I mean? Um, you know, I guess like my general thing is it, a newer, better condition tube would, would always be a better choice over a worn out tube, even if it's a 800 line BVM or something like that. Have you found the same or is that, you know, per situation? Um, yeah, I mean, it's going to vary a lot, you know, like per situation, each, each monitor is different, but, uh, yeah, the hours, if you've if accrued a lot of hours on the tube, the phosphors wear out, you start to get a lot more blooming. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the focus comes down, uh, the general, the, the color gamut, um, the max luminescence, all that starts to, to fade out. You, you, you get, I'd say like a faded, more blurry tube, hmm. um, with, with more hours just in general. Um, so that will definitely make a big impact on the monitors. Um, also, how well it's calibrated will make a big impact. Um, like if you just go in and turn um, a focus knob on, like say a 20L5, like the horizontal focus knob, if you just turn that, you know, like 
um, a couple degrees, it, it's going to look a lot worse on the focus. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of like so, focusing the lens of a camera. You want to make sure that you always have a dial, yeah, in, right? That and then uh, the convergence too um, will also, you know, affect color accuracy and and generally sharpness and focus as well. So if if you've got the rings. Um, you know, really lined up and dialed in, it's going to look a lot better than if everything is just a little bit off here, there, there. It's all kind of hodgepodge together. It's it's not going to look nearly as good. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a lot of things um, people aren't familiar with with these monitors. Um, they're, you know, a lot different than LCDs. Um, they're, the, the conditions are going to vary wildly. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've got more or less hours or depending on how well the calibration is. Now, one of like the things I, that, um, you know, that I'd always kind of used as a, a general rule is that I wouldn't go out <laughs> and try to calibrate, like go nuts and calibrate a monitor unless I knew the capacitors were good. Cause then you're essentially <laughs> calibrating it to bad capacitors. Is right. there a safe thing to try? Like, is there just a focus ring where you could, you know, mark it off with a Sharpie and then, you know, put it back if you can't get it working right. Um, yeah, you can do that. I mean, I used to do a lot of that when I was first working on these, um, a lot of Sharpie marking cause I was worried, you know, I wouldn't be able to get it back. Right. Um, uh, yeah, things like that. Um, cause I would never recommend people go into like the service menu and start changing geometry around unless you are 100% positive that the caps were good. Otherwise you could, you know, if you eventually replace the caps, now it's going to be worse and you're going to have right. to do it again. But just as right. you know, on, on PVMs and BVMs, are there certain things that people could look for to just go, all right, let's see if I could dial in some more focus here. And if it doesn't work, whatever, it's, you know, a quick thing. Um, well, yeah, I, um, there's, uh, like a focus knob on the flybacks, mm-hmm. um, or on, I think like the 20 M2U and M4U and those variants, they have, um, an extra, uh, variable resistor or pot that, that comes off of the flyback and like s- sticking out of the back of the monitor. So there's like a cord directly from the flyback mm-hmm, mm-hmm. into this little variable resistor hub. And then that goes into the, uh, neck, neck board. Um, so yeah, if those, those focus knobs, um, can make a big difference. Um, if, if it looks like you're set, everything else looks pretty good. Convergence, geometry looks good, but just looks a little out of focus. Mm-hmm. Um, dialing in one of those knobs just a little bit could make a big, big difference in the focus. Um, geometry and stuff, um, I might be a little biased, but for me, like I can adjust the geometry really fast and easily. Um, but this is something like, that you're very familiar with and I'm talking yeah. more from the terms of somebody I, Yeah, who, I know like, know. yeah, the first time I, I, I'm trying to remember back like those years, but yeah, the first times I was doing it, it did take a while and it, I messed things up and have to redo it. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I, at least like the, the, the four main ones, uh, horizontal, vertical size and displacement, um, mm-hmm. like those are really simple. So if those are off, like by all means, adjust those. Yeah, I keep forgetting to bring that up anytime people mention it. I, I even do that um, on a regular basis with things like, you know, Super Nintendo versus Genesis versus PlayStation. Yep. You know, I, I yeah, I'd never hesitate to just the horizontal size and positioning. When I meant geometry, I meant things like the curvature, the different points, yeah, styling, the, the and all, pin, pin yeah. cushion and that it's, stuff. Exactly. Um, 
Yeah. Um, I mean, what you, what you want to do is see like diagrams of what the adjustment is going to do. Um, that will help a lot. So you can kind of visualize what you're working with here. Um, uh, then you can kind of formulate a little bit of a, a battle plan, if you will, of, of how you're going to strategically adjust this adjustment and then this adjustment. Um, like, uh, if, if it's rotated, mm -hmm. the, um, the 20 M4U and the 20 L5, you can adjust that with the, the landing adjustment. Mm -hmm. um, so you can just rotate it without, you don't have to go in and turn the yoke manually yourself inside the tube. You can just change the landing adjustment. So that would be one of the first things I would do is adjust the rotation. Mm -hmm. uh, try to line up the, uh, the horizontal bars. Um, so if you put up a crosshatch pattern, um, you know, try and get the horizontal lines to be parallel. Mm -hmm. with the ground and like the top and bottom bezel. Uh, that'd be one of the first things I would do is line those up. And then you could check, um, the vertical lines and see how aligned they are vertically. And then use the, um, it might say, uh, parallel, uh, parallelogram adjustment or para adjustment on the 20 L five. Um, the M four, I think it's called V angle. Um, so you, then you can adjust the vertical lines and those are, those two are pretty easy to adjust. Um, it shouldn't take that long. And this sounds like stuff that like, um, I, I mean, I, it sounds to me like the hardest part is just knowing where to go to find these adjustments because you're talking about very basic things that, you know, like on, I've used to have VGA monitors as a kid that they had the knobs for this right in front and made it easier. So it's essentially the same thing. So that's, mm -hmm. you know, um, I always forget to tell people about stuff like this because even if technically the capacitors were bad and you had to redo all this, you're really talking about a few minutes, not hours. Right. Yeah, like those adjustments I described, like, you know, it's it's a couple minutes, so you could just line those up pretty quick and easily. And uh, do you um, use, like, the 240p test suite for that? Do you use the built-in patterns on the BVM when they have those, when those are available? Um. Yeah, I like... Um... 240p test suite. Um, I actually used the NES version made by Damien Yarick. Mm -hmm. um, he built in a great uh, fine crosshatch pattern. Um, mm -hmm. So if you look at any of my ads, and I've, I've got a lot of pictures of that. So I love that crosshatch pattern. Um, the the normal grid you see on the uh, the 240p test suite. I think uh, the lines are too thick. It makes it a little harder to adjust like convergence. Um, or measure uh, linearity. Also, it's got like red on the on the outside mm -hmm. block, so you can't see the convergence on the outside at all with the red. So I don't like that at all. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, just uh, my favorite test pattern for doing any sort of adjustments is a fine uh, crosshatch or a grid that's all white. Every every line is white. Mm -hmm. Okay, and those those are great. So out of all the monitors that you've had come through your shop, do you have a favorite, uh, like a, a favorite and the one that you like the least or something? Is there a best and the worst that you've, uh, that, you know, whenever they come in, you just normally know what to expect? Um, so, I mean, generally the ones that were produced later in the life cycle will have less hours and look better. Mm-hmm. 
Um, like it's it's really rare you'll see a BVM A series that does track the hours um, with more than like 10, 20,000 hours. Um, they're usually like always under that. Mm-hmm. And those were made, you know, up to 2006. Um, I'm not sure when they started exactly. It might have been 2003 to six around that time frame. Mm-hmm. So things like that, generally you're going to expect a lot lower hours on those, which, you know, makes a big difference. Um, also, like the 20L5 is about the same time frame. So generally those are low hours. Mm-hmm. Um because most of these, they they weren't used much after 2010, 11, 12. That's kind of when the switch to LCDs started happening. Mm-hmm. So if they were made in 2005 or six, there was really only like a four to six year period where they could have been used at all. And so yeah. that's that's a pretty good, you know, it's it's pretty rare you'll see something during that was used that much during that period. I was able uh, to score an A series a while back without, uh, obviously, without the BKM sixty eight X card. Sixty eight X, yeah. Uh, I ended up, I, I kind of regret it, but I ended up selling it to somebody who had um, a D series that I believe they'd done a cap replacement on, or really started to uh, um, to restore. Uh, but the tube was just old and worn, and they ended up taking the tube, did the full swap. So they did the tube from the A in the D, and then you know they even got the A series running. So now even though that tube's kind of worn, that was in the A series running composite in S video, and now you got the best composite video monitor out there. And uh, they you know they had the A series tube in the D, and it came out right. great. It was you know I think the tube had two thousand hours on it or something ridiculously yeah. low. That, yeah, that's pretty common for those. Uh, yeah, that's a great thing. I recommend doing that for sure because the A series, unfortunately, it's <laughs> it's going to be really hard to get RGB or component input into those. Mm-hmm. Um, they still look good with um, the YC or S video. Mm-hmm. Um, they're pretty nice for that. But yeah, those tubes are are great. You know the hours on them, and you can put them in a D series. It's going to look great. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, about like the best use you can get out of most A-series, unfortunately, now. Um, I also really like, um, there's some Ikigami, JVC, and uh, Panasonic. They were they were all under the same parent company. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, you'll see JVC monitors with uh, Panasonic flybacks inside and, and vice versa. Um, but, yeah, some of their, their later model ones, HTM series that were multi-sync, um, those were also made about during the same time period. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they'll have like the pure flat glass, um, those, and they do track the hours. Those usually I find are also really low hours. I um, did see so, one of those that, uh, it was multi-sync and I think it still had the curved glass. I could be wrong about that, but it looked, um, it looked great, but it stopped a buddy of mine had it and it stopped working maybe a month after I found, or I had seen it and, uh, he opened it up and, a large amount of caps had already leaked all over the board. Oh wow! And yeah, I heard a few people talking about the uh, the later Ikigamis look amazing, but you you kind of have to do a cap replacement because they're leaking now. Yeah, if if you suspect like the hours are you know above twenty thousand or so, start you know checking out those caps for sure. Because um, most of them, they're only going to have a life cycle of of five thousand hours above eighty five or one hundred five degrees Celsius. And depending on how they were used, you know, the ambient temperature, um, the airflow in the arena or I mean the facility where they were used and then like how many 
hours they were used at a time. Like if they were just left on, you know, maybe they never turn them off. Um, and it's a hot place in LA, the capacitors could wear out a lot faster than if it was in a, you know, controlled place with good airflow and they, they only used them for, you know, two hours at a time Mm -hmm. and then turned them off. And so the, the capacitors never had time to, to be run at, you know, above their max operating temperature. Mm. Um, but that's the thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, generally, I'd say 20,000 hours is when you might want to start looking at the capacitors. Um, usually under that, usually um, you won't see much problem with them. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it varies from monitor to monitor. But yeah, the Kagamis, they are known to have worse capacitors generally. Great monitors, um, though. I have a, a JVC 17-inch kind of right behind me. You can sort of see it. And it... Uh, uh, you know, it's obviously different, Shadow Mask, Aperture Grill, but I, I like the way mm-hmm. it looks a lot. I think it's incredibly sharp, um, right. and it, it just, it's just kind of neat. You know, it, anybody that's really into this stuff, you know, like the freaks like me, not just your average retro gamer, I would recommend picking up, however you do it, one Aperture Grill and one Shadow Mask tube because it's a... Uh, Sometimes, it, you know, it just feels different. Like, for whatever reason, I, yeah. I I like playing Neo Geo games on the Shadow Mask, probably because that's the tube style that was in the arcades. That's what my eyes are used to seeing Neo Geo games right. like, not under, you know, not under a Sony tube. But. Right, right. Um, yeah, it, it is a little bit different of a look. Um, I find generally um, people make a bit too much fuss over that um because they'll see like these really close up like zoomed in pictures on it and you can see like the triangular dot stacking versus the little slits right but if you're just playing from a normal viewing distance you're never really gonna be consciously aware of these little slits or triangular dot formations um you'll it's you know you're not gonna see a difference like like that but it is a little bit of a, a different effect um but i think personally it, it gets like made too much of a big deal about that um agreed i think the most people that argue about that have never actually seen them in person and i mean that respectfully right. it kind of sounds like a douchey thing to say but the truth is i think there was a, a forum thread a few years ago where somebody said can you help me find a crt without scan lines because i hate the way all these pictures look and it's they very clearly had never seen one in person because <laughs> it's not at all what they were. They were describing close-up pictures of like my comparison shots, not you know, not what right. it actually looks like and performs like in front of you. So, right, yeah. When I was looking into getting one of these for my own speedrunning use, I, I looked at a lot of those close-up pictures and I was like, oh, you know, the the nine hundred line, like those scan lines look too thick. You know, I don't think I would I would want that. You know. And then I was like, yeah, maybe this 800, that looks pretty good, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I when I got to see them, like, I really don't consciously see the scan lines or pay attention to them, mm-hmm. really. It's it's all you just appreciate the image. If you get really close, you know, you're staring, like, a couple inches away, maybe then you're going to see these scan lines and, and it's going to look like some of these, these pictures you see on the Internet. Mm-hmm. But uh, really, I've found I just like sharper. Sharper is, is better for me. Um Ninety-nine percent of the time, I have to agree. There are some very weird cases where I like a lower line count monitor. Right? But it's not, yeah, I can I can yeah. do that. Yeah, it, for certain games and stuff. Like I know Mike Chi. Um, he he's wanted to get like six hundred, eight hundred lines from me, and he's like, you know, I like I like the softer look for these these older games. Just that's how I'm used to seeing them. Mm-hmm. This it's a little too sharp. Because I mean, yeah, it, when things are really sharp, you it kind of gets like this sort of industrial 
um, feel to it. And it's not quite, um, you know, the, the sentimental images that you remember. Um, so it is a little bit different effect. And some people, you know, really do appreciate, a, a, you know, a softer image mm-hmm. versus a sharper one. Um, for me, I haven't found that so much. <laughs> I, like, I like the sharpness. So what is the sharpest monitor that you've seen personally? Um, I would say, uh, beef, uh, low hour BVMD 24, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, that's calibrated. Well, those are, um, thousand TV line rated and, uh, yeah, those, those get, um, quite, quite sharp. Um, uh, some PC monitors also can, can be very sharp. Um, mm-hmm. fortunately they, they can't run like 15 kilohertz only. Um, but they can definitely be, you know, really sharp as well. So those, yeah, um, the only D32 I've seen, it was really high hours. It didn't look so great. Um, it's you know, the really faded tube. Mine looks great. My tube's still in excellent condition, but it, it just, it, there's no way it's going to be as sharp as a D24 because it's the same TVL, but Stop. bigger. Yeah. So the, I think the sharpest two I've ever seen were, um, cause I, I haven't really seen a 24 inch that was perfect a friend of mine has one but i mean she lives really far away so i haven't seen it in person but uh the sharpest ones i've seen were mine and a buddy of mine had an a series with the 68x card with like a thousand hours on it and i was i mean it it was stunning to see in person yeah that would be really really nice yeah um and for for lower resolution games like uh, nintendo with 56 colors um the difference between like 800, 900, 1,000 lines is not that much. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wouldn't, you know, fuss over that too much. I generally like to, to get to 800 lines if, if you're going the PVM route. Um, there are, like, if you get a low hour 600 line PVM, those can, those can look good too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of think they're a little bit of a waste of a, of a PVM. Um, if, um, just compared to like a, a really nice consumer monitor, mm. um, th- those can look as you know good as well. So I, I feel like if you're gonna go the PVM route, I I recommend like 800 lines is a nice sweet spot. Now uh, I do just people. have to inter- interject for a second, and uh, the, uh-huh. what we're specifically talking about here is people it, like strong enthusiasts. <laughs> People that really right. know what they're looking for and, the, and they're getting in. I think a lot of people might hear this and kind of misunderstand. You know, first and foremost, get any CRT if you have the ability to. Any CRT will be overall easier and a, a good experience compared to a flat screen. Uh, and any PVM that has RGB input and not a worn out tube, which is something you could tell pretty easily. Even a layman could tell what a, a beat up tube looks like. Anything's going to be awesome. Anything. It's just what we're specifically talking about is the enthusiast and the crazies like me out there that, you know, that want to collect BVMs and want to collect these and, and have a different experience for when I want it. So I just don't want people to get the wrong impression and think that we're saying that, you know, a 600 line PVM is bad because far from it. It's still pretty darn yeah, incredible. If those, um, if they're low hours and calibrated well, yeah, they can look really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've seen a few that are, you know, really nice. Um, Generally, I found though, like the 1954Qs, those sort of things, um, or the or the M2, they're a little higher hours. So you're you're it's it's a hodgepodge, a you know a crapshoot of of faded tubes or not. Yeah, you gotta so just get lucky. 
it, it, but if you can find a, a good one of those, yeah, those those can look nice, especially depending on the the calibration. Um, if if it's dialed in really nice, the convergence, the focus, mm-hmm. geometry, all that, it it'll look great. It'll look better than than any consumer set I know. Um, but if it's you know more hours, not calibrated so well, you could probably find a really nice consumer set that you'd be happier with. Yeah, and that's something that you and I started to talk about a little bit over email, but I just thought it would be a better place here to discuss it um, on the you know, on a podcast like this. But that was one of the things I'd always been curious about because my friend Jose, uh, the first time I met him, told me to come down and check out a TV that he'd RGB modded. And I, I kind of knew it was going to look good, but I didn't know what I was in for until I saw it in person. I mean, it was like mm. the best arcade monitor you've ever seen, but a little sharper. <laughs> You know, like yeah, getting to that um, component or RGB inputs makes makes a big difference. Um, mm-hmm. you, you get you know just much larger color gamut. Um, the waveform isn't so compressed. Um, composite, ugh, uh, composite. Um, it's even a you know a, a high end BVM through composites not not gonna look so great. <laughs> It's actually funny because I've seen a whole bunch of like early 2000 consumer grade TVs where composite video will look better on those than on like a BVM because mm-hmm. of all the, the comb filters and all the technology that had really yeah. matured and they figured out how to make composite look decent. Even RF, one of the presentations I've been doing shows it yeah. just shows RF in a real world environment and how it doesn't suck as bad as you would think if you have the right TV for it. So kind of funny how that works. Yeah. It can, yeah. The filters and all that can can make a big difference. That's one of the big differences, like between the twenty L five and the M four. Um, it's just got far better comb filters mm. and um, uh, trap filters, that sort of stuff. Um, color matrices. Um, so that stuff, yeah, definitely can make a big difference. Um, but if you ever get to like to compare um, the wave signals of composite. And um, component RGB, you can just see how compressed the the signal has to be down into the composite. Oh, um, you mean the wave signals on an oscilloscope? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's it, it's the one of the best r- visual representations of what you're working with. You know, versus right. a clean RGB signal. So, right. Um, yeah, and then uh, YC or uh, S video mm-hmm. is. You know, also known as like that's going to be a, a lot better. Um, Definitely, that that can get, you know, almost pretty close to component or RGB. Yeah, that's something that uh, people seem to have been pretty, pretty shocked about. I guess when uh, you know, in the live right. demo that I do now, after afterwards, I told people to come up and when you're in front of a, it's a 14 M2U. It's a very good condition. It's not perfect, but good enough to demonstrate this. If you switch between RGB and S video. You got to mm. look to tell the difference. You got to be up close. You have to be at like gaming distance. You can't be like six feet away. But composite to S video, it is. There is it's no. A huge, it's yeah. a much bigger. Yeah. <laughs> no one yeah, mistakes the main, that. The main thing I would notice on one of those monitors is just the the color gamut gets a little muted with the the YC versus the component RGB. But yeah, it's 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 harder to much harder to tell than the jump from composite to YC or S video. So yeah, so I try um, try and at least get the S video guys, <laughs> right? And it should be fairly easy on most consoles anyway. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that I always kind of been telling people is if you have the ability to pick up a 14 inch or a 20 inch professional grade monitor for a good price, you know, you find one locally somehow. It's not being scalped. 
just grab it if you don't already own a CRT, and including ones that only have S video input. You know, they're they're not as common, but you could find them still. Still get a good experience. But once you get over twenty inches, that's really where I don't have a solid grasp on that because. You know, I, I've I, I can't tell you how many 32 inch consumer grade TVs I've seen that had z- almost zero hours on them. That once you RGB mod them, look ridiculous. And on the flip side of that, I don't think I've ever in person seen a 29 inch BV or PVM that looked good. Now they obviously did, but you know it's obvious that the ones that I've seen had a zillion hours on them. But it, you know, have you seen RGB modded consumer grades next to things like a 29 inch PVM? And do you feel there still is a difference on the professional grades? Um, so I haven't seen um, too many comparisons of consumer grades to those monitors. Mm-hmm. Um, I I have seen quite a few different 29-inch professional monitors. Um, they were all, I think all of them were rated uh, 600 TV lines. Um and yeah, I mean, those will vary a lot because they were, you know, again, older monitors. So mm-hmm. they might have been used 2,000 hours. They might have been used 100,000 hours. Um, it, they're going to vary a lot. Um, uh, I, you know, I have seen like some PVM 2950Qs that look just as good as a, a PVM 20M2, but oh, wow. it's just bigger. Mm-hmm. So it looks pretty much the same, but it's just bigger. Hmm. Um, those actually do have more, um, convergence adjustment options on them through the service menu. Hmm. Um, it's, it's kind of hard to use. Um, like I calibrated up, um, the last one I sold to, um, the speedrunner JSR. Um, he's been close to the, the Zelda legend of Zelda for an NES, uh, speedrun world record. Um, but yeah, that one last time I calibrated one of those was for him, and it took me like fourteen hours of of, of using the, uh, the 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 service menu on that is is a lot harder to use. You have to turn off the monitor and turn it back on. Oh boy! Um, and uh, it's it's got a lot of different options you can adjust with that, um, but they're they're hard to use. Um, and then I, I needed to mix in, you know, other tricks with purity magnets and conversion strips. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of back and forth between those two. So it was kind of right in the sweet spot of of having the ability to do these adjustments, but them being um, hard to do and um, interacting with other physical adjustments you would be doing. Um, so those the like the 2950Qs though those those can look very good and they have a lot of um a power and how you can calibrate them. Um in general I, they've looked better than like the NEC series monitors I've seen. Mm, okay. Um the, those multi-sync ones those the uh geometry they have problems with that especially when changing from different um video signal formats like 15 kilohertz 240p 480p yes absolutely i had an xm29 and it would go nuts mm-hmm. when you switch between 240p and 480p yeah you notice that yeah it uh, like the pin cushion will you know go in and out depending on those adjustments um and that's uh just kind of one of their flaws um i have a friend that he spent some ungodly god knowing amount of time to recap 
one of those. Um, and he, in those. <laughs> it's oh, it's a fucking lot. Yeah, um, he loves recapping mm-hmm. stuff, I guess. But yeah, so he he did that. Um, he did not see all that much of, of a difference. Um, uh, granted, the ones he had were um, were already pretty nice, though. Yeah, so um, the one I had, the power board kept dying, and the only licensed shop in the New York area just basically told me, I don't want to touch this anymore. It's too heavy. <laughs> so I ended up uh, selling it to a buddy who was going to restore it. But nice, it was yeah. awesome. And that's that's why it's funny that you say that you think the Sonys look better. Because remember, though, I just got to repeat again, the Sonys that I'd seen had a lot of wear on them. So, you know, I'm, right. I'm definitely I'm looking it's, at worn uh, tubes. But the NEC that I had... Was was amazing. I absolutely. I mean, in fact, I would definitely say that my six hundred line PVM looked sharper, uh, but I always preferred to game on the XM twenty nine just because it was big and bright and looked you know looked great. So, right, yeah, and it's a crapshoot. Like I seen maybe ten of those uh, NEC monitors, and you know they varied across the board wildly. Um, and but generally they they'd have the bit of those geometry issues more so than the the PVM mm-hmm, mm-hmm. one. Um, but yeah, it's it's really a crapshoot with with these depending on the hours, the the state of the capacitors, and the state of the calibration. Mm-hmm. Are there any really bigger ones that you've seen that stand out as good? Because there were uh, I saw a couple thirty seven inch professionals that were. It seemed like the line count was lower than much lower than advertised. Uh, you know, like you had to be, a, you had to be pretty far away for it to to look sharp. Which you know, with light gun games, that actually turned out to be the perfect monitor for it. But it certainly isn't something you'd want to get up real close and try to immerse, you know, like an immersive experience, if you will. You would want to stay farther back. Have you seen any really big ones that really stood out and that it's like, wow, this is awesome? Um. I mean, so my friend he that that recapped one of those NECs, he had um, one of the thirty-seven inch ones, mm-hmm. and um, well, actually had two of them, and and we both agreed they they looked better than all the twenty-nine inch ones I had seen. Hmm. Um, that he, had, he I showed him pictures of those as well, um, and yeah, his they were nice. I mean, I assume they were really low hours, um, and he when he recapped them, he really couldn't see much of any difference at all. Um, so yeah, if it's really low hours, the, those, those 37 inch NECs I know can look good, can look very good. Um, um, I mean, otherwise, I mean, you got your, your BVMs, the, the D24 and the D32, obviously Mm -hmm. in the A series, those, those can look amazing. Like they were, they were top of the line stuff. Yeah. Um, Good luck finding them for a reasonable price these days though, you know? Um, yeah, I mean there are there were um I guess the the HDM series they they had some really big ones of those um those I know be very good. Um So if uh, correct me if I'm wrong but those are the ones that were very high quality but did not accept 240p. You would have to do 480p and above just like a like a VGA monitor essentially. Um the HDM series yes I believe all of them they would only accept uh, 240p and above so like starting with 30 and above yeah yeah mm-hmm. uh, 40 yeah starting with 30 kilohertz um mm-hmm. up to maybe 50 kilohertz something like that So that that's kind of the other thing I've seen is when you're talking about 15 kilohertz you know basic RGB 240p stuff the professional grade you know fancy expensive monitors always seem to blow everything else away except really high really high line count consumer grades but when it came to 480p stuff 
Um, I've seen some 480p monitors, some, you know, they were expensive. They were like two grand in the early 2000s, but certainly not 50 grand or anything like that. And I, I would say that in most cases, a really good quality high line count VGA monitor would go toe to toe for 480p with a lot of these. Have you seen the same or is it just not, uh, you know, it really just depends on the model. Uh, yeah, I would say generally that's, that's true. It, yeah, it's going to depend on the model and, and the condition, of course, um, all that, but, uh, yeah, for two, 240p, um, a computer VGA CRT can look very good. Um, you know, just as good as a lot of these, uh, PVMs and BVMs hmm. for sure. So when you, uh, when you said you were adjusting some of these with convergence strips, um, did, did you find a place that sells them or do you make your own with like magnets and, and tape or something? Um, so one time I bought a lot off eBay, um, from like a guy in France, he had, uh, quite a few for sale and I just bought them all. Um, and you know, cause I couldn't find them anywhere else. So I was like, right. oh, what the hell? Um, uh, but usually, actually, I use the the Sony ones. Um, so when I when I calibrate these, um, usually I'll be taking off all the conversion strips that are on there. Mm-hmm. And often I find they've put far too many in that they didn't need. Um, it's it's because you can use a conversion strip, um, kind of like duct tape to patch up, you know something that you screwed up on you could have done a better job with the convergence rings and that stuff or adjusting the yoke properly Mm -hmm. so sometimes i've seen some of these where they've got like literally 12 convergence strips just piled in on the top of the monitor um and so you know i'll take all those off um i'll you know try to readjust the two the, the yoke to get it you know pushed in the right distance get it lined up centered all that, and then I find, you know, that misconvergence that was you know, just all across the top that some technician decided to put 12 convergence strips in there to, to fix up, like, it's all gone. It's, like, pretty much, it's all fine now, you, and you maybe need, like, one or two convergence strips or none. Hmm. Um, so I've stockpiled quite a few of the, the Sony conversion strips that way, and same goes for the purity magnets. Mm-hmm. Um, often I'll, you know, I'll find four purity magnets on the corners um and when i take them off to go to recalibrate i adjust the yoke to the right position i'll find you know i maybe only need one or or no purity magnets Mm -hmm. and the image will look look better that way um so yeah when doing the calibrations um yeah starting from the beginning and and doing everything really well from the start before you progress into conversion strips and purity magnets and stuff it will look better and you won't need to use those things. And I try to stay away from using conversion strips and purity magnets, um, if at all possible, because they do kind of lower the, the image quality where they're used just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like the more you use them, it, it, it kind of starts to stack up and you get, you know, the, the colors and the, the focus get a little bit off. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are kind of things you, you only, only want to use when you really need it. Like it's really going to help. 
Now, have you ever seen a monitor that you've fully restored and calibrated? Um, have you ever shipped that and had calibration go off during shipping? Um, the only thing I've personally seen is an arcade machine that went from New York to Utah, uh, and when it got there, it had a purple blotch in the middle of it, and it turns out it's just Ooh. the magnetic field of the Earth, and he was able to use mm -hmm. um, uh, a degaussing wand, and I think he just left it on and would rotate it every few hours or something, and it went went right away. Luckily, the guy that bought it saw that I took detailed video before I shipped it, so he knew I didn't screw him over or, or anything like that, but we were both kind of laughing when we figured out what it was. Like, who would have who would have thought the magnetic field of the Earth would throw that off? Yeah, it, uh, the, the purity is very sensitive in these. Um, so if you read the manuals, they will recommend aligning the, uh, the face of the tube so its normal vector is facing east west east. yeah <laughs> um is is the best alignment with the earth's magnetic field and then also um, some of them will have adjustments depending on if you're in the northern hemisphere or the southern hemisphere mm -hmm. you, you you know you flip a switch on that uh, some will have adjustments like a pot you can rotate depending on where the monitor like what direction it's facing um that's pretty funny and a lot of the, the like I know the, the BVMD 24 and 32 manuals, they say to, to check in all directions, check the purity, mm -hmm. uh, because they've got amazing purity adjustments on them that you can do through the menu to adjust like 15 different sections of purity throughout the, the monitor. Mm -hmm. So they recommend to, um, to, to check it in all the directions and, it, and make sure the purity is, is looking good in all different directions, um, you know, east, north, west, south. Um, and then also, yeah, I mean, if you move to a different part of the Earth, um, the magnetic field could be a little bit different there. You might be living under a lodestone or something like that. It's, it's gonna, it will make a little bit of a difference. Um, it's pretty much just the purity, though, is, is the one that's that sensitive. Right, but so, like, for example, the stuff that you're talking about, if you have a big house and you move it to the opposite corner facing a different mm -hmm. direction, you could yeah. throw it off like that, but I'm... It could, a little bit, yeah. But I mean mm -hmm. things like, after you've spent the time to get the geometry right, and, you know, you pull off all the conversion strips and set everything, mm -hmm. you know, shipping that across the country, let's just say, you know, New York to LA, LA to New York, whatever, um, do you... Is, other than damage in shipping, is there a big have you ever seen like all of that get completely thrown off oh no no okay. um geometry convergence no that's um not really going to change at all um it's really just the purity um if the geometry and convergence did change from that it would be so minuscule mm -hmm. um the the bigger thing that could happen is if like a convergence strip got um slightly tilted off or dislodged or, right. or a purity magnet that would make a big difference um, something like that mm -hmm. that's what i'd be more worried about happening as far as convergence and geometry go um, otherwise it's really just the purity and more likely it will be you'll notice it in the corners mm -hmm. um and it, it it probably won't be that significant um but yeah, that is that is something that could happen typically with the purity. But I wouldn't really worry about that at all with geometry convergence. 
And when um when you do ship these, do you have because in my experience, fourteen inch and smaller, you could do the double box thing, and unless I mean you should be safe unless something goes really wrong, and then anything over twenty inches, you know, double box and put on a pallet. But twenty inch was always that spot for me that it's always seemed too small to pallet. But we almost lost one completely. It was actually the one my friend Jose recapped and calibrated, and it looked ridiculously good. And then it arrived at the person who bought its house. Uh, luckily the tube was still fine, but the case was completely smashed. So it was heartbreaking mm. actually, but, uh, you know, was, was you say you shipped that on a pallet? No, that was double boxed. Uh, and that was insured using the company InsureShip, who, uh, totally screwed me over for every penny of that. They, uh, they didn't even really hide it. They were trying everything they could to not, to not give me that, uh, that settlement because of it. So. Yeah, um, yeah, I've heard it's it's pretty tough to get uh, shipping settlements. Um, usually, the the seller is just screwed out of that. Right. Um, I have the the one time FedEx damaged one. I did get reimbursed. Um, I ship a lot with them, and I you know I pack it really well. And it was clear they damaged the box and dropped it and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, one of the biggest things I'd recommend with that is not to have it delivered to the person's house or home. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how um, the one I shipped did get damaged. Otherwise, um, I haven't damaged any of these. Um, you you want to go to the, the freight center. So UPS, FedEx, whichever one, um, send it for um, a ground hold at the location that's closest to... Um, the recipient of the monitor mm-hmm. that they would pick up on their own. Um, when when these truck drivers are out, you know they're crunched for time. They've got they're overburdened on their schedule, and they've got a lot of things to deliver. They're by themselves, and they have to park this truck in some illegal way, and then get this ninety pound oversized box off the truck by themselves, maybe downstairs and, and so forth. So the chances of them mishandling it during that is pretty high Mm -hmm. um they might just kick it out the back of the truck and they're in a hurry um uh so i would very much steer away from home delivery and go for a ground hold instead um it's also one less um uh, movement the monitor has to go go for like it doesn't have to be unloaded and then reloaded into another truck and then loaded out again um and when they load into like a fedex um facility there's people there that can help them Mm -hmm. um and generally they're not you know going to be so as crunch for time they're just unloading a lot of these boxes to one place and they've got other people there to do it in this streamlined process with the ramp and Mm -hmm. carts and stuff so that I've never had a problem with um, when I ship to that. So that's one of the biggest things I would say is is go for a ground hold, pick it up at, at, at a facility, don't do a home delivery. Um, I use um, boxes I get from Uline that are... Um, so a lot of people use a double wall 24 by 24 by 24 box. I don't think that's big enough. Um, FedEx will recommend four inches of padding in all um, six cardinal directions, which you just can't get if it's only 24 inches high mm-hmm. um, because the monitors are like a 20L5 is about 20 inches deep. Um, so you're only looking at about two inches on the top and bottom. Um, that's when you, you know, you want to put the glass down um, is, is the best way. Glass uh, down. Sh- 
Yes, glass down for sure. Interesting, because I um I thought that the two centering rings uh, could sometimes come forward if you shipped it glass down. You'd want to ship it either glass forward or glass up. Um, so you would want to make sure those aren't loose, but no, the centering rings, like they should not be moving at all. Um, I'm, I'm, com- I'm using the wrong name for it, but you know, they're more noticeable on BVMs, but if you have like an all white screen, you see a, a strip kind of one third of the way from the top and one third of the way from the bottom. Um, I think it's inside the tube and it's, what, uh, kind of holds the lines in place. The, oh, the um, the aperture grill frame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's uh I've seen that I've seen them more pronounced on some monitors than others, even the same exact model number, and I was under the impression that sometimes if uh, you know, if they're shipped hard or if you know, if they're bound strong, you could those could come forward a little bit. Um yeah, those could move potentially. Um I don't think the orientation of the uh, the tube is going to change that, you know. It's going to be more on what kind of shocked impact the the monitor took. True, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, tube down. But yeah, there's a the, there's a few advantages to going glass down. Um one is just the center of mass is lower. Mm-hmm. Um so that helps you can um, you you want to try to ship them with um, so like if you see behind me I've got I've got like a big roll of these upright stickers. Yep. Um, so if you can keep if the box stays upright the whole time, that's really going to help. Um, so then if you know the tube is on the bottom, that's where uh, the center of mass is you know closest to. Mm-hmm. So that's going to make it harder to tip over or something in transit or, you know, for some someone that wants to to move the box quickly to, like, nudge it onto its side or something. He's going to see see all these things um, and the center mass is going to be a lot lower. It's going to, you know, want to stay in that orientation. So there's that. Um, also, um, it's uh, in the uh, in the X, Y plane. Mm hmm. Um, sorry, I'm just engineer getting a little. It's <laughs> just how I think. Um, yeah. You've got like a uniform center of mass um, around the the outside of the box. Mm-hmm. So if someone tries to pick it up on you know this side or comes around the back, tries to pick it up over there, you're you're looking at the this the center of mass is in in those two directions in in the center of the box. Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas if you put it um, face up, you've got the glass on one side is going to be a lot heavier. Mm-hmm. Um, so if they try to pick it up from the back, they're going to have a much harder time getting it up, and they might drop it then. Okay. All right. This uh, is all start. You know, it's it's the common sense from packing with weight part of it. I just wasn't sure if there was anything specific to a CRT tube itself. In which you know it just sounds like center of gravity and weight distribution are the reasons, and not a specific CRT related reason. Um, yes, gravity, uh, center of mass. Um, also, the like the back of a lot of PVMs is plastic, um, mm. like a twenty L five or twenty M four U. It's a lot more fragile than like a metal frame mm-hmm. or or the front casing. Um, so. Like if you just rest like a 20M2 on its back plastic, there's a good chance those little plastic push pins, um, those rivets will just push through and the back plastic will push into the neck board and break the neck board. Yeah. Um, that's just from its own weight. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I, yeah, you definitely don't want to, to go that direction. Um, so yeah, I find the, the front is, is strong. Um, I know the, uh, like the M2 and the M4, they have those, I want to say they're stupid little, um, rings on each side. So you could pull it out when it was rack mounted Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and people make a big deal about those. Like they want the, they want those things on their monitor. Um, because they're used to just seeing how they look. They're there. used yeah. to seeing it, right, right. So if you put one of those face down, um, I'd be worried about breaking those rings. So whenever I ship those, I take those things off, and it's pretty hard to do because there's not much space behind the screws mm-hmm. back there. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of why I say stupid because I've spent a, a lot of time taking those those stupid things off um, so they don't break during shipping, but really they, they have like no functional purpose for the, the person using the monitor. They're just taking up space and in the way um, and they just break easily during shipping. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so those could break, but on like a 20 M uh, or 20 L five, um, the, the front is, is strong. Um, and then also I, you know, pack the bottom where the front is facing the best of any of the sides like that's where i put the best stuff in so um i get uh packing supplies uh, from uline and also a local company here in san diego um like this quarter inch uh foam Mm -hmm. stuff i get big rolls of this um this is fantastic it's got kind of a you know a, a little bit of a squish to it it's um i guess it's k coefficient um is not you know too hard or too soft it's right in the middle where you want it mm-hmm. um and you want to kind of get a variety of materials if possible so some might be a little harder like um styrofoam like this mm-hmm. um this can be pretty hard stuff so you might want some of this on the bottom um some stuff more like this foam um i try to stay away from bubble wrap on the bottom just because it's bearing all the weight there's a good chance it could squish Mm -hmm. um but if it's sandwiched between like softer materials like like the things i've described it's it actually the the weight gets uniformly pressed across it and it can it can hold the weight all right um but if you've got like sharp corners pushing into the bubble wrap like if you're putting it directly on the corners of the monitor those corners will definitely pop the bubbles next to them Mm -hmm. um and then one of my favorite favorite things is um, couch cushions. Um, <laughs> so I uh, I've got quite a few couch cushions in storage, um, and I, I cut I cut them up to um, you know twenty four by twenty four inch sections. Um, I get it about uh, three inches thick. And I put that on the bottom as well. So you've got, and then some couch cushions are, you know, more squishier than others. Um, but uh, usually they're about the same right in the middle. And it, it's pretty squishy. Like when I put the monitor on top, it might sink down an inch or an inch and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that really helps to absorb the impact. But, you know, I, uh, it's, it's the variety of materials. So if you've got a really soft couch cushion, then I would get, you know, maybe some other stuff that's a little harder so it doesn't bottom out if it squishes all the way down, mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. And, uh, yeah, I would recommend, like, five inches on the bottom um, uh, and then put the glass on that, and that's going to be just a super, you know, shock-absorbent, resilient surface um, that can grunt the impact of something from the bottom, and that's the biggest thing. And as long as the box then stays upright... 
Um, you should be golden. Um, the sides and the top aren't too much of a problem. I have had, um, like the one time I, I had it damaged cause they, they wanted it shipped to New York and, um, they, like they weren't there to receive it when it came in. Um, because they're, when they give you a window, uh, for when to expect it, it's, it's not a guaranteed time window. Mm-hmm. So they, they happened to come three hours early, and the guy wasn't there. So I imagine that kind of pissed off the guy, too. So he had to unload this from the truck, you know, carry it up these stairs in New York, and then bring it back down. Um, so actually, the top of the, of the monitor got damaged. So I worked out um, a way to help that. Um, I, um, so I make a frame that I put on the back of the 2005s that I ship or, um, it would also work on like a M4, M2. Um, so I've got this, um, this is triple walled cardboard, um, cut up from, uh, like fruit bins or Mm -hmm. things, watermelon bins, they're triple walled cardboard. So I've cut these up into like, um, uh, you know, precise strips that I can put on the back of the metal case that will buffer between the metal case and the plastic. Makes sense. And then I hold those in place um, with edge protectors that go along the, uh, the sides mm-hmm. of the monitor like that. That's so awesome. I've got four of these edge protectors, you know, all around the, uh, the sides of the monitor. And then, three of these coming out the back that are flushed against the metal case that provide like this little pocket zone to protect the, uh, the back plastic. And then I put that inside a double walled inner box and these edge protectors, um, help keep the size like exactly to shape. They fill cause the, the monitor is, um, it's like a quarter inch less than 18 inches wide and a quarter inch less than 16 inches tall. Mm-hmm. And so the box is 18 by 16 in the middle. And so these, um, these edge protectors fill up um, the eighth inch on all sides. So it fills in the box, you know, really nice. That's awesome. So you've got this. Yes, this. Well, that's what you get from an engineer, a mechanical <laughs> engineer. Um, so it's probably over-engineered, um, but it's super resilient. I, I could put this upside down. Um, it should be fine. So you've got this, um, you know, extra frame built around um, the monitor, and then that is put inside a, a double-walled box, and then that is put inside um, a 24 by 24 by 29 inch uh, box that has, you know, like five inches of variety of foam cushion stuff on the bottom, and then that is plastered with you know, labels like this and, and caution stickers. I write the value of the, of the, like how much the client paid for it on top of it, just to give them a little extra warning. Mm -hmm. Like you, you know, your franchisee is not going to be happy if there's a a $1,500 claim because you decided to, to throw this monitor off the truck. Um, and I've shipped, you know, over 50 of these like that and, um, never, no problems. So when you um, when you get a lot of monitors in, so you know you find a place getting rid of them, you go pick them up. Um, what's you know in, in a very quick overview, you don't have to dig into the details, but what's what's the life of an average monitor that hits your possession and then goes out for sale? 
So obviously you power it on and test it, but like, like past that, what do you, you know, what's the generic overview that you do to each of these? Um, so after it's sold to a client? No, like as you, like or, you get it in. So now, uh-huh. you know, now you have a, let's just say you score 10 monitors, right? So, um, what do you do to each one of them before it goes up for sale? Oh, right. Um, so it's going to depend on the monitor. Mm-hmm. Um, like the low hour 20L5s I have, um, I offer free, uh, basic calibration so i calibrate the geometry if anything is you know particularly off with the convergence i'll adjust that mm-hmm. um i'll do the the chroma and phase the white level the black level um and then a little bit of the color accuracy mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff so that that's like the basic thing i offer on all like 2005s i sell mm-hmm. um and then if the client wants to pay for a full calibration service then i will open it up um, clean everything out. Um, I'm pretty much always going to take off all the convergence strips and purity magnets, um, uh, readjust the yoke. So disconnect, um, you know, cut off the adhesive caulking and, um, readjust the, uh, the wedges on there, line that up, you know, where it's centered, you've got, um, good purity and, um, uh, horizontal uniformity and then do all the uh, convergence ring adjustments that is what takes is probably the hardest part mm-hmm. is the most time is getting well getting the yoke realigned and centered and positioned is is pretty hard and then the convergence rings uh, particularly the one that adjusts the green convergence hmm. um, that will have a big impact on the horizontal and vertical convergence um, the red and blue ones. So you go, you have to go back and forth between the different rings. Um, you know, it's it's kind of like an iterative process where you you adjust one, you get it pretty close, then you adjust the other, get it closer, and then you go back to the other adjustments. <laughs> yeah, and and redo that. Um, so yeah, the green one definitely is, is going to take the most time by far. Um, uh, getting getting the green right. Um, and that's another thing a lot of people don't notice, um, like on the uh, the twenty elf, uh, the twenty F one U's. They have a lot of built-in convergence adjustments, mm-hmm. but that's just for the red and blue. Huh. Um, yeah, you, the green you can only adjust through. Um, I think it's the six pole magnets. Interesting. Uh, those purity rings. Yeah. Um, yeah. Side note. Um, uh, and so, yeah, if your green is off because the, the electron guns aren't aligned right, it might be a, a little pushed in on the left or right side or the top and bottom. There's really nothing you can do about that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, yeah, so I'll do those adjustments, get the convergence dialed in. That can take like three hours um, and then get the purity rings on there if it needed it and the convergence strips if there's um, some things I know I can fix up in the corners that's not going to, you know, it's going to be worth the mm-hmm. the gain loss trade off of using the conversion strip, and then um, yeah, and then mostly the same things. Um, the, well, I'll also do the focus, the horizontal vertical focus, and then there's dynamic focus adjustments in the twenty L five. Most people don't know about, um, so you can adjust um, around the top, bottom, side edges, and all that. Um, that's through the menu. So that's all pretty in depth stuff. Uh. Yeah, a lot of it is. Um, I'd say 
things people could do pretty easily on their own is open up the case and get a little screwdriver like uh, like this, a little Phillips, and you can do uh, some of the dynamic convergence adjustments on the yoke quite easily with this. Mm -hmm. um, um, if the focus, again, if that's off, um, you can just, you know, adjust those pots a little bit to, to get it better. That could help. Um, of course, you know, if, if the tube is really faded, it's got all sorts of problems that right, yeah. you might have bigger issues, um, you're dealing with here than just the, the focus. Um, uh, but I have seen a few cases where it's just the biggest thing was the focus was not turned right. Um, there's also a pot on the back of the neck board that will adjust the horizontal convergence. And that's pretty easy to adjust. So if you can see, you know, um, if you look at the middle of the screen with a white line, you see there's like a left, the left side is more blue or red and the right side is more red or blue. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you can adjust that pot on the neck board and that's pretty easy to do. Um, just using your eye, you know, you could get it better. Um, I use um, a convergence gauge. Um, so it will, here, I got it right here. Um, it'll separate the three colors, the red, green, and blue, and also magnify. Um, this is by Klein, hmm. Klein Convergence Gauge. So, yeah, I don't know if I, if you look through the webcam, you can see. Yeah, you could, I can see the blue and the red in there. So. Yeah, so it's going to separate out the colors, um, and I have found that to be extremely useful when doing convergence adjustments, uh, more so than um, like a jeweler's loop or something like that. Jeez. So I guess um, um, so. I guess it's safe to say when a monitor comes through your possession, you first do a basic overview, and when I say basic, I'm talking you, a person who does a lot of these and knows what to look for. So, you know, mm -hmm. certain monitors, you don't have to worry about caps leaking and corroding the traces. Other ones, you get a newer Ikegami in there, you're probably going to pop the back off and at least shine a flashlight in to make sure. Um, and then, you know, test to make sure that it works. And, uh, and then if customers want, you can go to these crazy lanes that you've been explaining, which I love, by the way. Uh, but... Uh, and when you list them for sale, do you put pictures of the individual monitors on, right? You don't, you know, you don't, um, uh, you don't just use like generic pictures for it, right? Um, yeah. So I can send the client. Um, usually, I'll send videos is the easiest way. Mm -hmm. So right. when they've ordered up a monitor, um, I'll record videos of it um, with going through the different test patterns, maybe some different games. Um, images like that show around the external casing. I find that to be the, the best way is to get a video Could of it. I not agree it's more. And it, you know, I, I'm in the middle of shooting a video about what, you know, top, top tips of what to look for when buying a, a monitor online, basically warning people of the scalpers that I've personally dealt with a lot. And uh, I basically say, you know, everything has a camera on it these days. Your cell phone, you know, you can get great right. cameras cheap. There's no excuse to not just walk around the monitor with it. It takes a minute. And the thing that I like to do is I like to, um, I like to have a console on 
and then turn the monitor on so you could hear it power on. Because there are some that, you know, that you have that very clear indication that there's something going on. You need some work or that loud pop that goes with it. It's not that, to say that the monitor is bad, but you're probably going to need some work coming up uh, depending on certain signature sounds. Just like any IT nerds listening to this, definitely, depending how old you are, could listen to a hard drive back in the day and tell exactly, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. like it's at the end of the life or not. And it just yeah. something like that seems like so such a small thing to ask when you're spending hundreds or thousands of dollars and it really shocks me that you know the people will take a picture of one and use that to sell all their monitors and not power them on not test them at all not you know not ship it you know they'll send us have a picture of like sonic the hedgehog playing on it and then you get it back and it won't even turn on it won't play a video game you have to go into the service menu to to set it back up for 240p because it probably was only a 720p monitor the whole time or something i just you know when i i every time i've 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 talked about that. It seems like everybody that takes the time to understand what these things are agree wholeheartedly. And people that just pick up a truckload of stuff, slap some you know some stuff on eBay and sell it, find that to be a nuisance because they don't actually want to test anything. They just want to sell them as is. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, it took me um, you know thousands of hours of of self study and, and working on these to to get to where I am now. And definitely like if you would have asked me five years ago when I was first starting this, like I, you know, would have been much more naive and, you know, um, unknowing of all that goes into these. And, uh, yeah, I mean a lot of, I don't think it's a lot of people. It's mostly just one person really. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, the, yeah, uh, eBay sellers that, you know, they, they ran a business selling eBay stuff out of high school. Um, that's their thing. They're good at that. They saw this market they could get into and just cashing in off that. Um, and I, and I do also see very often a lot of broadcast centers um, that just don't, they don't really understand. And I don't fault them for it. It still means that right. we have to deal with it. But I see a lot of places listing a beat up monitor for four grand because they paid 25000 for it. So I understand that right? 100%. Yeah. I get why I get why their accounting team was probably like, no, you're not putting that for sale for $100. Are you crazy? Like, <laughs> So I, I see right. that a lot too. I see that very often. And I've gotten a lot of monitors that didn't work. One, I've never even seen this happen, but one shorted out my Super Nintendo. It must have had a short in the video board that that sent voltage back down. Luckily, it just blew a fuse or something, but I I didn't even think that was possible, to be honest with you, until it happened right here in front of my face, right where I'm standing now. And that was not a scalper. That was just a warehouse of stuff that said, and they said right in the eBay description, untested, right out of our lab. If you have problems, let us know. Like it was, I don't, I don't have any problems with anything like that. I just, there's, there's a lot of people that see a new and emerging market and I have no problem saying the name pound technologies, you know, companies like that see a hole in the market and they go, well, how could we take advantage of this and make the most money possible? And then eventually just, you know, shut the company down, start a new one and do that in a different market. And I see that, you know, corporate with companies like that. And I see it individually with people and, you know, I even saw it locally with um, there's a recycling center here that that's gotten a very awful reputation. And as soon as they found out that there's now a need for this, they'll tell people prices and then they'll, the people will get there and they'll double the price and go, well, you know, we could make wow. more money selling it to somebody else. So leave. 
And it's just, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of why I wanted to do this interview. You know, so the, somebody vouched for you and you're obviously not in that category. Uh, but unfortunately, you don't, I mean, it's human nature. You always hear the bad stories, not the good stories. And that's always what retro RGB has been about is highlighting and celebrating all of the awesome people that in all of the retro gaming world and everything around it. So I wanted to take the time to talk to somebody like yourself that obviously cares about these things. And, you know, shit happens. You're going to you're going to sell a monitor one of these days that's going to die a month later. That's not your fault. It's a power surge or something else. And people have to realize that people have to to see the difference between somebody restoring these and making a business out of it and scalpers so that's why uh, right, you know, right. i very much appreciate you taking the time to to come on and do the interview uh, you know i'd if i had known uh, if i had known who you were while i was out in san diego i would have rather done this in person it's always better that way so hopefully i'll be back out within For a year sure, yeah. maybe we could do a follow-up in your lab or something and get some footage of some yeah. of the stuff that you do but no. Um, so I guess the best way to end it, of course, is where could people find your work? Where, you know, are you on Craigslist, eBay? You know, where's the best place to find you? Um, right. So I am working on a website that will hopefully be up soon. I haven't had much time to work on it, but it's going to be uh, pvmcrt.com. Okay. I think if you go there now, it'll say coming soon, mm-hmm. uh, I hope. Um, so that will be a site um, that I'm hoping can streamline the process. You know, I'm also hoping to, to learn something about building a website through that. But um, right now, um, if you search on Craigslist in uh, Los Angeles or San Diego area, um, you'll find my ads. Um, I also have, I think, one on Facebook. Okay. Um, and you can, uh, the best way to reach me is through email. Mm-hmm. Uh, my email is blake.pifo. Uh, it's P-I-E-P-H-O at gmail.com. Okay. And if you search for, um, yeah, Blake, Pifo, Spider Waffle, um, you, can, you can find me all across the internet. Um, I used to be somewhat famous for speedrunning, um, mostly Half-Life. Um, That's awesome. Uh, yeah, and you can search, search me on... Um, like CRT Collective on Facebook or PVM, BVM, uh, CRT Professionals. I can't remember what the name is right now, but that's the other big mm-hmm. uh, Facebook group um, for these sorts of monitors. Um, yeah, and if, um, I mean, there's a lot of people on there that will vouch for me. I try to, I have like a big um, collage of posts I've, I've, I've made of, you know, people, you know, that have bought for me or have seen me in person. Um, that have vouched for me that, you know, I'm an upstanding person trying to do this to the best of my abilities and in a professional manner, trying to service people and keep these preserved, working well and distribute them, uh, to people that want to use them. Mm-hmm. Well, once again, thank you very much. Um, we're definitely going to do a follow up of sorts and, uh, I'll make sure to put uh, all of the links to the places that you just said, uh, wherever people are finding this, whether it's audio podcast, uh, video somewhere, or just following the link direct on the retro RGB's news section. So thanks again. And, um, you know, I'll make sure to, to definitely do this again. Yeah. Yeah. That would be great. Um, there's a lot more I'd, I'd love to talk about. Um, I could probably talk for another three hours <laughs> um, at least. Um, yeah, stuff I, I don't think has been covered and um, you won't hear much about anywhere else on the Internet. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely do a follow-up soon. Okay, yeah. Well, thank you, Bob. Uh, appreciate it all. Um, this is great talking to you. I want to thank you again for this opportunity. Um, 
have a lot of respect for you and the community and, and the work you do because I know it's got to be a, a ton of work. <laughs> um, yeah. It's you know it's it's transcended what what's once what once was a hobby into uh, something much more than that now. Um, when you when you get to the level like what what you're doing. Yeah, I, um, I consider myself amazingly lucky to be able to, to do this, and it's just <laughs> I'm lucky enough to have people around me that see that I'm, I'm I really do love it, and I really am trying my best. So, uh, right, yeah, thanks thanks to everybody, I guess. And, uh, perfect perfect way to end this. Thanks to everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, I'll see you next time. Okay, yeah. Thanks, Bob. <laughs>